Hi, hey, welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm K. Albert Little, an evangelical, non-denominational convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began when a pastor I was working for asked me what's more important, the Bible or tradition? As an evangelical in my early 20s, I thought the answer was easy. But as I began digging into the formation of the Bible, into how the scriptures were written and collected and preserved, I bumped inevitably into the Catholic Church. It was then, as I began reading primary source documents written by actual Catholics, that I realized that what I thought I knew about Catholicism was almost completely wrong. My understanding was based on misinformation and, more often, simple misunderstandings. This podcast exists to fill in that gap, the gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. We have real Catholic conversations with real Catholic thinkers from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week, I have an absolute marathon for you. I'm joined by Tom and Ellie Zorowski. Cradle Catholics Tom and Ellie left the Catholic faith for evangelicalism as young adults after some pretty incredible experiences. Over the course of the next 30 years in the evangelical church, Tom worked overseas with persecuted Christians, founded a church plant, and together raised up a number of children. Ellie and Tom are incredible storytellers with an incredible story to tell, and their journey out of the Catholic Church into three decades of evangelical Christianity and their return to Catholicism is such a fascinating and enthralling tale. Tom and Ellie are listeners and supporters of this show, and I'm so grateful that they reached out to me to introduce themselves, so grateful for their support, and so excited and privileged to bring their story to you. This episode is a bit of an experiment. It's our longest one ever, but in the editing room, I simply could not cut it down any shorter. This is a fantastic story and I'm sure you'll agree. The Holy Land is often called the fifth gospel. Pilgrims who return from the Holy Land often talk about seeing the Bible in a whole new way. They talk about how much the trip anchored their faith in reality. A trip to the Holy Land is a trip that every Christian should take at least once in their life. Select International Tours and Cruises wants you to experience a life-changing trip to the Holy Land. Head over to Select International Tours and Cruises to learn more. Check out the show notes for this show for a link to their website and to find out more. Without any further ado, here's my fantastic interview with Tom and Ellie Zorowski. You're going to absolutely love it, so please listen and enjoy. Hey friends, and welcome back to The Cordial Catholic. I'm joined this week by Tom and Ellie Zorowski. 
Tom is the founder and director of Global Response Network, GRN. Since 1998, GRN has served as a messenger to awaken, inspire, and motivate the church and is a worldwide outreach of compassion. Tom's message to the church in North America has been fueled in part by his relationship with persecuted and suffering Christians from around the world. His travels have taken him to over a dozen nations on four continents, including China, Mexico, Vietnam, Bangladesh, Uganda, Kenya, Pakistan, India, Afghanistan, Thailand, and South Sudan. In the past 30 years, Tom has made over 80 international ministry trips. Tom and his wife, Ellie, and four of their six children reside in Liberty, Kentucky. They attend Sacred Heart Parish, and their two older children also live in the beautiful state of Kentucky. Tom and Ellie, I am so excited to welcome you both onto the show. Thank you for being here, and hello. Hi, Keith. Thank you so much. Hi, Keith. We're so glad to be with you. This is an absolute thrill to have you both on the show. I am very excited. Tom, I, I'm thinking way back when uh, when I first heard from you guys, and I remember seeing a, a video, a, a short video of you on uh, Canadian television, actually, I think it was. And uh, your the story you told there was just a snippet of of uh, the ministry that you've been doing these past 30 years. And it was just so moving, the way you told that story and and what you had to share. <laughs> so I'm very excited to speak to you for a much longer time and, and to hear some of these stories and, and how some of these experiences may have, have brought you uh, deeper into, uh, into relationship with Jesus and ultimately uh, into the Catholic Church. I'm excited to hear these stories. So, so thank you both for being here. Yeah, thank you for having us, Keith, and we look forward to sharing what we can, and our hope is that it will really encourage those that are listening. Well, I think it absolutely will, just based on the conversations that we've already had so far uh, behind the scenes and, and, the, and the conversations I've seen you have uh, uh, in different media outlets, this video I've, I've seen and, and, and read things from you. It's fantastic, and I, I want to dig right into it if we can. And I'm wondering, Tom, if you can tell me a bit about what role faith played for you as you grew up, from, you know, from your childhood kind of up into, up into growing up. Did, did faith play a role for you in your upbringing? You know, it really didn't, uh, Keith. It, I, I wish that I could say that it really did. I, I guess the one thing that I would say is that I grew up in um, uh, just, a, you know, kind of a middle-class family, um, and I, I didn't hear a whole lot about God. And this is going to sound a little bit crazy because I went to Catholic school. And so my parents were so good to, to spend the money to make a way for me and my brothers and sisters to go to Catholic school. And, and don't misunderstand me. I mean, the teachers were so kind to me and, and all that. It was, it was good. And when I needed discipline, they were ready to give me the discipline I needed, too. So they were, they were really, it was good. You know, some of those nuns, I'll never forget them, you know. And, um, and so that was good. But I have to back up just a little bit. Um, because when I was born, 
and this is really backing up, I guess. But when I was born, I I wasn't even supposed to live through delivery. Um, I the cord was wrapped around my neck, and I was what we call a blue baby, and um, so I wasn't breathing. And the doctors didn't really think that there was a, a whole lot of chance that I would even go to a normal school or anything like that. Um, once I made it through. Um, that the first week, they told my parents that um, to not expect me to probably to to go to a normal school or or to do anything really important with my life. And um, but my mom and my dad, I know that they really believed in the best for me. I know that my mom really tried hard to uh, to get me to just pass a spelling test or anything like that. She really she really gave her best. Uh, to help me, and and at the same time, I I was really challenged. There's no doubt I was definitely challenged academically, and um, to the point where I remember, you know, teachers telling me to stand up in school and and uh, and to read out of a book, and and I would just sit down at, uh, just because everybody would be laughing at me, and and I would just cry. And it was it was really tough um, trying to just understand like why was I even made what what is the point of all this what it, it was just hard as a child and um, so school was tough uh, and at home uh, I hate to say this but at this at the same time I think it would help people to understand where I'm coming from. And that is that when when I was seven, uh, my dad had some challenges, and my mom and dad both had some challenges, and my dad left home. And um, uh, may God rest his soul, he died just uh, months ago. And um, and uh, but anyway, he, he left home when I was seven, and he never returned uh, back home till I was fourteen. And so that was tough growing up. It was a it was a very difficult time for me to understand uh, love. Just to understand love was tough. It was it was difficult to understand that. And um, and so it was it was one of those things where growing up, my family, uh, the boys. I got a brother, a great guy, and uh, but we didn't express love. Uh, very much growing up as a kid, and so it wasn't a whole lot of telling my dad I love him or anything like that. I tell my mother, and that was wonderful. Um, but I didn't really understand love. Love was very foreign to me, and um, so as much as as much as I cared about my mom and dad, um, I didn't know what love was, and I surely didn't know how to express that, and so. Growing up uh, in our family and, and trying to understand faith in the middle of all that was was really challenging for me. We didn't, even though I went to Catholic school, I was an altar server as a kid, and um, but we never really heard much about Jesus at home, um, and that that was hard. It was it was hard because it almost seemed like that Jesus was just. Uh, a part of life. It, he wasn't our whole life. He was just a piece of it. 
Um, so I could go to Catholic school. I could go. We never miss mass. We could go to mass and, and all that, but I never heard about how Jesus wanted to impact my life in any other way. Um, so that, that was tough. It was, it was confusing for a kid growing up, um, it, in those days. And, you know, I think the hard part was that was, I was born in 1965 and, um, as one person once said much better than I could ever say. And they said that, you know, uh, many people in my generation, uh, they were, they, they may have been catechized, but they were never evangelized. And so there's that that whole idea of I I jumped through all the hoops. I made my first communion. I was the altar server. I did all that, but Jesus really didn't mean anything to me. Um, I I didn't even know that I even believed in the Holy Eucharist. I, it was just so challenging for me, and I didn't really have somebody telling me explaining all these things to me. I didn't have anybody explaining what the readings were on Sunday, things like that. So it was really, it was really kind of a, a I'm going to just call it confusing. It was a confusing uh, upbringing when it comes to my faith. Now, when it comes to my parents caring about me, okay, my dad left because of the challenges that he and my mother were having, but I didn't necessarily feel like that I wasn't cared about if that makes sense. I really believe that um, all of us, uh, we loved each other to the best of our ability, but life was tough. It was really challenging. And, um, and it was, and it, so uh, because Jesus was not a part of that, it was even more tough, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I, I wonder then, and you know, that story isn't, uh, I think as you even indicated, it isn't necessarily an incredibly unique story of being of going to Catholic school at that time, right, and being catechized but not being evangelized, as you say. There's yeah. such a generation uh, in the Catholic Church that is in just that position that I think we're 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 still seeing the ramifications of this kind of uh, going through the rituals, being part of that, but during a time when and when the Church itself and, and catechists who are doing that teaching maybe weren't really sure what necessarily to teach or how to teach it or if it was important to teach. And then you end up with this, I think you said it so well, this confusion, right? Yeah. So I wonder at what point as you went off into high school and maybe started to become a young adult and maybe started to look more deeply into your faith yourself, what role did the Catholic Church play for you uh, as you grew up and kind of took on your own faith maybe? Yeah, I think that because I went off to uh, Catholic high school as well, um, I, I learned a lot about, I think I just learned a lot about what, um, how faith can play a role in your life. Uh, I had a teacher uh, who is a wonderful guy. His name is Mr. Hawk. And um, by the time I got into high school, I was already doing things I wish I never did. So drugs played a role in my life. I started drinking pretty heavily, um, things like that. And I was hanging out with the wrong people. 
Um, and somebody might say, you mean that happens at a Catholic school? Yeah, it really does. <laughs> so um, in our Catholic high school, I had a man named Mr. Hawk, who is one of our, one of our teachers. He was the head of campus ministry. And uh, he was a friend of my mother's, and I believe that was the only reason why I was accepted into that school. Um, I failed the entrance exam to get into it. And um, again, because academically, I was really struggling. I, I, I really had a tough time uh, understanding or reading or comprehending anything as it pertained uh, to academics. It was really tough. But this guy, Mr. Hawk, uh, the head of campus ministry, he, he, was such, he, he understood me. Um, and that, the reason I think that he understood me is because he took time with me. He, and, I, and I say that because I think oftentimes we get in such a hurry, and when somebody gets around us that maybe seems like a total misfit, they, just, they seem like they're totally messed up, um, and I was messed up. I'd come to come to school hungover or strung out on drugs. There's no question I was a messed up kid. But he still took time uh, to to listen to me. And and it's interesting because I remember Mr. Hawk saying to me, he'd say, I, I'd tell him, you know, oh man, I just got so I just got so drunk last night, or. You know, I'm, hey, man, I'm sorry. I, I smoked a joint before school. Forgive me. And he'd say, yeah, do it till it satisfies, Tommy. And I, and I thought, who is this guy? What's he, what's he talking about? <laughs> but I knew he cared. And, um, and this was a very interesting thing, is that he would say something like that. And so he and I both shared a vice at that time, and that is that we both smoked. And so as a, as a result of that, Mr. Hawk would, and I know this is probably not good, uh, good example, but it worked. And, uh, Mr. Hawk, uh, would say something to me. He would say, Hey, Tommy, want to come on in my office? Let's share a ciggy butt. Now that sounds totally crazy, <laughs> but you know what happened? We'd go in there and I, and I'd smoke a cigarette. And he'd share the Bible with me. He'd tell me about God's love and that God loved me and cared about me. Now, I would walk out of his office frustrated and, again, confused because it's the first time I ever heard about it. And it, and it really touched me in a very deep way. So much so that I'll never forget that he and uh, another man... Uh, uh, Brother Raymond Powers in this school, they um, led a junior boys retreat. And for the first time, I remember experiencing what I believe was the Spirit of God in a very profound way, where, where people were beginning to share their, their feelings. I mean, we just didn't do that, uh, sharing your feelings. Um, and so to me, that was so amazing that here it is, the, these two teachers of mine in school telling me about Jesus, and I'm, and I'm starting to think, maybe this is all real somehow. I, I don't know how it affects me, but 
it sure seems to affect them. And so they really did their best to evangelize me and the other uh, young men that were in the school. And, um, and so even though I didn't act like I really listened, I know that they were planting seeds that would um, really uh, bear fruit in the, in the future, for sure. Ellie, I'd love to loop you in here uh, at this point. As a, as a young adult, you know, uh, what, what kind of role did faith play in, uh, in your life uh, at that stage? Well, uh, I had always grown up in church, and my mom was, my mom and dad were always um, really faithful to bring me to church, to Mass. And I can't ever remember a time when I didn't believe in God. Um, I knew that somehow he cared about me, that he loved me, but it was never really explained to me that, um, or at least it didn't get through to me, I should say, (laughs) that what I read in the Bible, all the things that I may have memorized, um, you know, scriptures, books of the Bible, um, just reading even each morning, uh, every day that I would do that, I never realized that it was supposed to apply to to my life, Um, that I was actually supposed to live what I was reading on the page. I thought I was just reading, it was more history, and it was really nice and comforting, but um, I never knew that God desired a relationship with me and that he wanted me to actually live for him. Yeah, that's very, that's an interesting picture into uh the the state the the state the status of of what it was like to grow up Catholic at this time right I think it was something interesting that you just said there Ellie is that maybe maybe it was in some way expressed to you that you had to live that life but didn't get through to you at least right right I had a lot of good people in my life growing up um, even as a young high school student I was surrounded by um, a lot of Catholics who loved Jesus. Uh, and they were examples to me, but to be honest with you, at that time, I also saw a lot of um, what I would say nominal people in the church who uh, would come, and you could just, in my mind anyway, I would look around and I felt like that there was, every. I thought that everybody looked at Mass the way I did, so it was hard for me to realize that maybe the lady ahead of me was actually devout and that she loved God with all of her heart. Um, I would look around at other young people and they're kind of looking around or looking at their watch to see what time it was, you know, it was going to be time to leave. Uh, and that's kind of how I felt, you know, and because it wasn't real to me, God wasn't real, real to me. Um, I looked at some of the people that, that really did love God around me, but it was kind of like, well, they're just really nice people. I never knew what role faith played in their life, that they authentically loved Jesus with all their heart, and that's why they did and said the things that they did. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, so at at some point, uh, both of you are going in this story are going to meet and get married and begin to establish a family and, and careers and a ministry. I'm wondering... As that began, what faith? What role did faith play for the two of you as you started off uh, life together? 
Well, we were just talking about this to a friend of ours recently, and the story of Tom and I meeting is kind of fun. Uh, we met when I was only 16 years old, and Tom was uh, 19 going on 20, and we actually met at a Catholic Mass where, uh, I should say, my sister was in the second grade. I'm almost nine years older than she is. And Tom's mother was her second grade teacher in Catholic school. And so we, I came to the Mass. It was a, uh, I don't know if most parishes do this, but at this particular one, I just remember it was a kids had gotten gifts from Christmas and they were bringing their toys for a toy blessing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I came uh, with my mom and my sister because I had nothing else to do. And Tom came with his mother uh because he didn't have anything else to do that night, and they were predicting bad weather. We lived in upstate New York, and it was supposed to snow, so he was driving her, and we met at Mass. And um, we didn't, uh, well, we greeted each other at the sign of peace, um, and that was about it that night. But there was definitely uh, something there between us, as we greeted each other that day. <laughs> I thought she was really cute. <laughs> I still do. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I had come off of a, a bad relationship and um, really felt like that he couldn't possibly be interested in me. I didn't think anybody would be at that time. And he came out of a bad relationship as well as some other things going on in his life. And he said he wasn't looking for a relationship at that time. And uh, But anyway, we we started dating. and uh, But immediately, one of our first conversations, despite the ungodly lifestyle that we both led, the first conversation we had was about God and what did we think about him and how he affected our lives? Yeah, it was it was really powerful uh, when I stop and really think about where we've come from, and um, and at that time it was it was interesting because, like I said, I thought she was really cute, and uh, that was about the depth of the whole thing. And um, but but then but then I I I met her mother. Her mom was really influential in my life and in becoming a Christian, really following Jesus. No, no joke. Um, uh, it's funny when I, when we were dating, I, I would walk into their house and, and her mother would be sitting at the table reading her Bible and she'd say, Oh, I read a scripture and reminded me just of you. Do you want to hear it? And I'm thinking just, I'm, she's got to meet me out in the driveway or something. This is, I can't, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> and, um, but she, again, just like Mr. Hawk in school, her mother expressed love to me in such a powerful way because she expressed love and um, by bringing Jesus into it and bringing God into it and, and making it so clear to me that there was more uh, to this whole church thing than just going to church and um, that God actually did want to have uh, a relationship with me and that God had a relationship with her. And I found that to be so attractive in her mother 
And um, I think that then, again, those seeds started to be planted within me. And yet at the same time, I was struggling with all kinds of uh, different challenges as it pertained to drugs and, and alcohol and stuff like that. And so on one side, I'm, I'm learning something about love. On the other side, I, I hate to even say this, but I was uh, considering suicide. I, I just really didn't think that life was worth living. Um, not the way that I lived it anyway. And because I tried to live life apart from the one who made me to begin with, I think to anyone that tries to live life separate from God finds themselves in, in a mess. Um, and, and I can say that on behalf of all the, all the friends I had in school. Yeah, so we went to Catholic school. That doesn't mean a thing. Um, I mean, if, if you can go to Catholic school, that's great, but it didn't mean anything for us, especially in our generation. It didn't mean anything. And so I, I mean, I uh, think about my friends, different ones that I had. One was an alcoholic. One ended up being, uh, uh, shooting drugs and, and different things like that. It was just a messed up life because we tried to live life separate from God. And Ellie's mom really introduced me in a special way, I think is because I was really attracted to her daughter. That helped. <laughs> um, but, but, the, but the truth is I saw God alive in her. And, and so that really uh, evangelized me. With, I don't, I'm, I'm thinking that she meant to evangelize me. She probably had some fear about me um, and about her daughter actually liking me. In fact, it, rem it reminds me of something right now that she told me a story that, um, that she had a list of things that she wanted for her, for her daughter in a husband in this long list, and she would keep it in her Bible. And when she met me, she crumpled it up and just gave up. <laughs> like, what is the point of all this? And um, I'm glad to say that she told me that even though she crumpled up that list, she told me that she, that, that, uh, what, she, what her daughter found in me was actually better than what was on the list. Now, I can tell you this. That didn't happen without God. <laughs> That's a really fantastic story. So I wonder then, you guys meet and you're you're dating, um, and and faith is kind of something that uh, you know was maybe not something you embraced or understood or were or, or evangelized with in particular. But here you see an example of a faithful person. It echoes kind of what you had in high school, a similar experience. When when do you begin to take on that faith and really begin to live it out? Yeah. So it really. It, it, it all happened with an experience, honestly, for me, um, while we were dating. And Mr. Hawk had invited me uh, to come to a Catholic charismatic church uh, service, a mass. And he said to me, he said, would you come? And I thought, well, this guy was nice to me, but I really don't want to go. And anyway, I'll go. So I used to work out in a gym. I was I was getting real, 
getting to be a really big muscular guy and stuff like that. Of course, you couldn't tell that now, but <laughs> back then I was becoming a really muscular guy, and um, and I was so uh, insecure and, and arrogant and everything all at the same time. And here we are in upstate New York, in western New York, rather, and there's it's it's cold as can be outside. It's the middle of February. And, um, and so I go to this mass, I, I show up at this mass, I got these, uh, uh, pants on that I wore when I was working out and I got a tank top on. I mean, I just, <laughs> I walk into this place, you talk about a misfit, I was it, you know? And so, um, anyway, we, we go into this, into this mass and, and I don't remember Keith, I don't remember any of it hardly. Uh, as far as like what was going on, I mean, people seemed happy, but I, rem- I remember hearing when I was a kid, there was a guy smiling at mass and, and uh, um, my dad said to me, hey, there ain't nobody that happy. <laughs> and it just cracked me up. But these people seem legitimately happy. And, um, and But I really felt very uncomfortable even being there around them. But I was there, honestly, just because Mr. Hawkins had invited me. And so I, I went to the Mass, and, um, and I don't remember anything about what the priest said, but I do remember this, and I'll never forget it as long as I live. It's, he shared a scripture found in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 11 through 13, and it says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. The plans for good and not for evil. The plans for a future full of hope. And when you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. And that rang through me. It just, and I remember standing there and the, and the priest is talking. And I said these words, and I'll never forget this. I said, God, if you're real, there's no way that you can forgive me for all the things that I've done. There, it's impo- I mean, just I'm, I, won't, I won't go into it, but I, it, I just knew that, or I thought that I knew that God couldn't forgive me. And at that moment, I believe, I, I believe at least God broke through. And I heard in my heart and in my head, not only can I forgive you, but I will. And I broke during that time. And I remember Mr. Hawk saying to me, um, asking me a million dollar question, really. He looked at me and he said, Tommy, what do you want out of life anyway? And I said to him, if what that man said is true, if it's really true, I want all that God has for me. And he said, I encourage you, go up and pray with somebody up there. They had a prayer time um, after the Mass. And I remember walking up there. I I always tell people I look like a pit bull with shoes on, you know. I'm walking (laughs) up this aisle, and I'm thinking, what are these people going to do for me, you know? So in the I'm in one half of me I'm broken on the other half I'm just trying to be tough you know and and act like you know hey I got it all together I was 
I didn't have it all together. Two weeks before this night, I sat on the edge of my bed with a hunting knife to my wrist. I was going to slit my wrist and die in my bedroom. And I walk up this aisle. And honestly, I I could not look at people in the eyes. And and the only person to pray with up on the the, uh, altar area was the, the, the most frail old lady I think I'd ever seen in my life. It just, it was just so fitting because here I am, this big, uh, you know, tough guy with all these muscles and everything. And I walk up to this wrinkly old lady who's standing there and she, and for the first time I look her in the eyes and she looked at me and it was as though God was looking through her right at me. And she said, honey, what can I do for you? And I said the same thing I said to Mr. Hawk. If what that man said is true, I want all that God has for me. And she began to pray for me. She never took her eyes off me. She began to pray for me. And the power of God was so strong. I, of course, I knew nothing about God, really. Um, like, you know, in an active way, I knew nothing about relationship with him or anything like that. And other than seeing it in, uh, Ellie's mom and stuff. And as a result of that time, I remember that night I gave my life to him. And I'll never forget. I, Mr. Hawk was right there standing behind me at the altar and I was weeping. I can't, I can't remember the last time that I had cried. Here I am, got this long hair, and um, just thought I was a tough guy, and here I am weeping. Um, and Mr. Hawk, I turn around and look, and Mr. Hawk's standing there, and he said, Tommy, he said, you finally found what satisfies. Now, I remember all the time in school, when I tell him I'm strung out or I'm telling him I'm, I'm hung over, he'd say, I'm do it till it satisfies, Tommy. Cause he knew it never would. He knew that, um, uh, relationships with girls and, uh, all these things that I was doing that were wrong. He knew it would never, uh, it would never satisfy me, but he knew that God would. And that night, changed my life forever, Keith. I remember going home and I had a bag of pills. I I lived on these, on these, uh, on speed. I lived on it because I worked a night crew at a grocery store and I had to stay awake and go to school and do all these different things. And I'll never forget. I, I took these bag of pills and I threw them in the toilet. I took a bag of pot, I threw it in the toilet, I flushed the toilet, and I've never gone back since. It was, it was a miracle of what God can do in a person's life when they finally come to Him and, and repent of their sin. They, they see their life for what it is. They, they realize that they're not, they don't have anything to offer. They come to God in their humility, and in their brokenness, and they give their life to God, and God changes everything. And that's what happened to me. It, for, it forever changed my life. I'll never forget um, going to my friends and, and telling them what happened. And they looked at me like I was a nut. 
Um, you know, because we, why? Because we were just, all we did was, my friends, we would hang out and get drunk and smoke dope. That's what we did. That was life for us. And so it, it really changed everything. Um, even to the point where I had people saying to me, hey, if you ever talk to me about Jesus ever again, I'll never talk to you for the rest of my life. I was so excited about what God was doing in my life. But here it was that my Catholic friends um, and my Catholic friends' family, they, they couldn't understand. Here I was, two weeks before that night, I wanted to kill myself. And now I wanted to live. Now I saw life worth living. And, and nobody was excited about that. Did I know the right way to share it with everybody? No. All I, hey, all I knew was I didn't want to do what I wanted to do. It used to be I didn't want to live. Now I wanted to live. So my life had completely changed. And all I could think to do was tell people about it. Um, it's kind of like the, the blind man in the Bible where Jesus heals him. And he, he, just, he, he just goes and tells everybody. And now what's he going to do? Shut up? No, I, I, I couldn't shut up either. God had absolutely transformed my life. How? I don't know. I don't know what was coming. I didn't know uh, what the future held or anything like that. All I knew was is that I wanted to know him, like really know him. Um, and so I gave my life to him and kind of left everything else up to him. <laughs> That's an incredibly powerful story, and a great picture of you in in what sounds like track pants and a, and a tank top in this church. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> what a piece of work I was! Yeah. So, Ellie, I wonder you're you're dating this pretty cool guy. It sounds like. <laughs> Where were you? I mean, it's it sounds it's interesting that your your mom had such an impact on Tom's spiritual life. Uh, in this story, where where were you in in your faith life at this time? As as Tom then has this uh, incredible life changing miraculous breakthrough. Well, it, I could just say it, there was no breakthrough for me immediately. Um, yes, I had. I think we had officially fallen in love by that point. We had been dating for about a year, I guess. And when he. I didn't go to the church to the mass with him, and he came back and he started talking about all this that had happened to him, and I knew that he had changed. I mean, I knew him before and I I knew him after that, and so I knew that it was real. Um, I had been trying to talk him, maybe even going to like AA and trying to quit smoking all that, and then in one night, you know, he was uh, stopped doing all the different things that he was doing. So I knew it was real, but I had, in the young age that I was, I had developed a lot of, um, kind of feministic thinking. And so when he started talking, he wanted to actually read the Bible and talk about it like it was supposed to apply to our lives. And when he started talking about, uh, well, we started going to a Bible study with his, uh, his aunt and uncle. And um, there was just a lot of things, I'll just say, that came up, uh, such as, you know, submission, all that kind of thing that I didn't really appreciate, and I I kind of pushed against it. 
and it it just took me a long time. I mean, I wasn't going to leave him because of his newfound faith in Christ, but I didn't I didn't join him. I found it fascinating, and we talked a lot. And I think that uh, based based on our relationship with his aunt and uncle and the different discussions that we had with them and um, sharing with me the things that he would be reading in the Bible. I was growing very slowly, but I was resistant against a lot of it at that time. (laughs) So, Tom, was this Bible reading, was this deepening of your faith drawing you deeper into the Catholic Church where you'd grown up, or where was this this deepening of these relationships with, with Christ, where was this taking you? Well, that's a great question, because I didn't know. It's an interesting thing. Mr. Hawk had given me a Bible um, in school, and of course, I I graduated high school with fourth grade reading comprehension, so I was, I struggled to read. And so when you look at something as thick as a Bible, I mean, it, it totally scared me. Um, and I thought to myself, there's no way I'll even be able to understand it. Well, when I began to read, uh, the Bible that night after I had that experience and it was very real experience. Um, and, uh, it was almost as though I could, I just loved reading, uh, what who Jesus was. I loved reading about the, the miracles he did for other people, just like he had done for me. Um, I loved, I loved all that stuff that I was reading. And so I would just tell Ellie everything that I could remember. Um, and it, and so it had a huge impact on me and, and I would share that with, uh, my aunt and uncle who were also born and raised Catholic, but they had left the Catholic church and, and so they invited us to their Bible study that they had. It was a good Bible study and everything like that. It was it was nothing anti-Catholic or anything. It was not like that. But I'll never forget, as I would share these things with my other Catholic friends, my other Catholic other Catholic families that I knew, they they did, didn't get anything out of it. They didn't think anything good about it. Here, here I was. I'm. I just. I. I was. I was a partier. Okay. I'll leave it at that. I just. I knew how to party, and um. And almost to the point where, uh, it took our lives uh, being drunk in a car one night, and so, I knew how to party, and it almost seems like people were more comfortable with me then, than after I had this incredible experience with God and fell in love to the best of my ability. Or what I should say, I was falling in love as I was reading the Bible and as I was praying. I never prayed in my life. And and next thing you know, here I am, a guy that doesn't know anything, who's praying. And I, I mean, it was very simple prayers uh, because I didn't have anything else to give but that which was very simple. And God took it. He took it and he changed me little by little. And, um, and I'll never forget, I, had a, I, I moved out of my parents' house and I moved into um, a place where my next-door neighbor was uh, a part of 
a church, a non-Catholic, a Protestant church, non-Catholic church, and I had shared with him the testimony of what took place in my life. And he goes, man, that is awesome. You know, and I'm going, nobody's ever told me that it was awesome. You know, that, that it was a good thing that actually, other than Ellie's mom, um, being happy for me. But I, I never had anybody say that, that what happened was a good thing. And so he said to me, he said, man, would you like to come to men's breakfast and share your story one day? And I said, well, I don't know about sharing my story, but I, I, I like food, so I'll come to men's breakfast. <laughs> and, and so I went to the men's breakfast, and, and there were several people that were there that were asking me questions about my life because they didn't know me. I didn't know them. And I shared the, the little bit that I, that I, it, what had happened to me as it pertained to God. And for the first time since this experience with the Lord had happened in my life, I really had people who were genuinely excited for me. They were happy that God was now a part of my life. And I think that, Keith, if there was anything that was sad, about that, that time of my life is that my Catholic family, my Catholic friends, you know what I mean, the, the, the people that surrounded me were not excited about the fact that I didn't want to live, but now I wanted to live. It, it, it kind of, it didn't make any sense to me, to be honest with you. Um, and they they weren't they they couldn't be excited about my excitement uh, as it pertained to God, and that was hard. So as as a result of of that, I it was easy uh, for my neighbor to invite me then to go to church with him uh, to this Protestant church, and and next thing I know, I'm I'm feeling like well, I think that's where we need to go. Um, so we had, we had, uh, I had started going to that church and I was telling Ellie about it. And once again, I think Ellie was feeling like, oh, I don't know about this. <laughs> the thing I love about Ellie is she's, she's not quick about just about anything. Um, she really thinks things through. And I really feel like that that's what she did as well with, um, with this church idea of, of leaving the Catholic Church to go to this Protestant church. But in the end, she did. And that's where we were married, at that church. And, um, and that started uh, a whole new life for us that we really, neither one of us really knew uh, anything about. But, you know, it's interesting too, Keith, that something happened during that time because that started a 30-year journey uh, for us in being, being in the Protestant church. I, I, all I can say is I fell in love with God during that time. I fell in love with the Bible during that time. I, I began to understand, Ellie and I began to understand that there was more to life than just doing what we want to do and ask God to come bless it. Um, I, I learned about uh, what it meant to be truly pro-life. Uh, I, I'm just, 
I learned about missions. I learned about giving my life away for the cause of Christ, for his kingdom. Um, and so I don't regret the, the time that we spent away from the Catholic Church um, because good things happened. I look at that time as a time of growing for both of us. And we really did grow. And, um, and like I said, we've, we began to believe the Bible, that God really did have uh, something specifically for us, that God, God's Word actually meant something. And it wasn't just something that we listen to on Sunday while somebody else reads it and then we just go home. It, it was that God really did have a plan for our lives. Hmm, there's so much in there that that's just so fascinating as you unpack that. I mean, I think first of all of just the tragedy of, as, as you put it, these, you know, you've had this life-changing, miraculous, clearly miraculous experience. That can't be underscored enough. And uh, the, the Catholic friends around you, <laughs> this Catholic school, these are the people that should be should be celebrating this the most. Those are the friends that had the hardest time understanding this and those that 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 do understand this are these are these protestant uh people uh friends or or neighbors and then their understanding and their joy i mean what fascinates me is that you had this experience within a catholic mass so it was you know the experience happened in the context of the catholic church but the catholics that you knew for the most part around you weren't there to celebrate that with you like they like they should have been, right? Yeah, that's so true. And that honestly is looking back, that's so sad. And and if there's one thing that I can say, and this is really jumping ahead, um, but as a Catholic now, I I want to be the person that's excited for the person who had an experience with God. I want to be the person who's standing there cheering them on. Who's who's saying? Come on, let's go. Let's let's live for God. Come on, and um, because I, as simple as I am, is is uh, you know what some people may say is uneducated as I I might have been. I know one thing. I know that when a person experiences God in a real way, it changes everything. And I want to be there. For, for people now who are having that similar experience, or it may be totally different than mine. It doesn't matter, but their life changes. I want to be there to cheer them on and, uh, and to lock arms with them and say, come on, let's, let's go home together, you know, go home to heaven and, um, and live for God while we're here on earth. And um, this time is so short. It's, it's so temporary. And uh, eternity awaits, and I, I really don't want, um, I, I just, I don't know the right way to say it, except that I just want to cheer people on. I want to help people in their life as they walk with God to the best of their ability. <laughs> I think that's very well said. So, Ellie, as you see Tom transform in this way, and then 
you know, he, he began to uh, have interest in this Protestant church as as those Catholics around him aren't aren't embracing the the, the faith and and Christ and this newfound um, lifestyle of Christianity versus just kind of going through uh, you know reading the Bible rather than just hearing the Bible. Um, how did this kind of draw you along, and what was your experience as you guys then got married and and began living this Protestant life? I mean, what was this? Tom mentioned that you you think things through a bit slower. You aren't going to end up in the mass in sweatpants and in a, in a tank top quite so hastily. So I could just say that he'll probably never happen, <laughs> no matter how hard I think through that. <laughs> so what, what, I mean, what was your experience uh, through all of this? Right. Well, may I back up just a little bit? Uh, so as I said, that we attended the Bible study uh, with his aunt and uncle, I began, my heart began to soften, and I began to see how that uh, there was a lot of scriptures that I misunderstood, and so I did start to um, have a, a, what I think was an authentic relationship with God, started praying, started reading my Bible every day. Um, my dad was a teacher, and I would go in early to school with him, and I'd sit in the hall before school started every day, and I would read and pray. And when we started attending the Protestant church, um, we weren't married yet, and I was sitting under, you know, hearing the preaching and, and started going to Bible studies there at that church, and it really did, the scriptures themselves really started affecting me. And for the first time, uh, it did get through to me that, yes, in fact, that what I read in sacred scripture was supposed to apply to my life. And I began to really want to serve God. And um, I had a, a very particular instance in my life at that time that I was feeling conflicted because I was still living at home with my parents, and yet I, I loved this man. We saw ourselves moving towards probable uh, marriage, and we knew that uh, if I stayed in the Catholic Church and he continued in the Protestant Church, that um, at least in our mind, uh, that we didn't see how that could work if we got married. So I felt like I needed to make a decision. And so uh, one day I was in my parents' home and I, I sat down on my living room floor and I have to say that the church we went to, they weren't necessarily, it's not like that they just talked about uh, Catholics and weren't really anti-Catholic, but there was elements there of, you know, well, if you're Catholic, you, you can't really be a true Christian. You know, it's kind of that feeling. And I, it did make me question, and I thought, well, what is all this about? You know, I, I it was... A, the typical, well, if it's not in the, it's not in the Bible, then it can't be true um, what you believe, and so I, I did have a lot of questions, and I made an appointment with our priest, our parish priest, and wanted to ask him some questions because I had a lot of them from going to that church of what they seemed to think was wrong that we believed. And I, I made an appointment, I think I was like 17 years old at the time, and 
it was a big deal for me, and I went to that appointment. I saw him, and he met with me for probably five minutes. He handed me a couple book booklets about what Catholics believe and kind of patted me on the head and sent me out the door. He didn't take me serious. Mm-hmm. And that really had a major impact on me because I came, I went home, I sat on my living room floor with those booklets. I got out every uh, Bible and, you know, any type of Bible reference book that my mother had there at the house. And um, and I just put them all around me and I, I remember writing down question after question in a notebook and just kind of looking at those booklets and and taking on the thoughts behind our Protestant, our new Protestant friends, you know, well, where's this in scripture? You know, where's that? I don't see this. I don't see that. And I just furiously was like writing down left and right. And by the time I got done, the only good part of all that was, um, I really said to God that day, God, I want to serve you. I don't want to serve you in the way that man says to serve you. I want to serve you the way you say to serve you. Of course, in my mind at that time, I thought that meant pretty much scripture alone. And I gave, but I, the good thing about that day was I really feel like I gave my life to him that day. Um, He, I gave him, if you will, permission to be the Lord of my life. I wanted to just uh, live my life for him, and, and I saw that in the light of the new things I was learning, and so that for me meant um, leaving the Catholic Church and, and going with Tom to the Protestant Church, and then from there on, it wasn't too long after that that we got married. I think the really interesting thing in both of your stories is how you did you did try to reach out to the Catholic Church of your, of your upbringing to... Uh, understand this new experience of faith you were having, both of you, but in both cases, Tom with your friends and your in your faith family there, and uh, Ellie with this with this parish priest, uh, and you 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 both kind of hit hit walls, hit hit people who weren't willing to, um, or or you know a, a church at the time in, in large measure, I guess that maybe wasn't willing to necessarily uh grapple with these things and and embrace this as a lifestyle and it's such a tragedy to and i i think for us catholics now important to underscore and to recognize and, and to not not be that for anybody else to take take these things seriously and to and to really address these challenges and embrace embrace the faith uh as it's lived out right i think so because you know it's interesting somebody might say well i just don't i really don't know a whole lot i'm not a you know a, a theologian i don't have all this deep uh academic background or whatever you don't need it just love people just just listen to them celebrate with them and um be a friend to them that that's really that honestly is is the most beautiful evangelism that we can do is is just go out and genuinely love people for who they are um and and walk with them and and listen i mean, it's so big I, I i could say it over and over and over again how important that was that what mr hawk did for me that that he loved me and listened to me and and when the time came, he led me to God, um, and 
I believe that we can have such a huge impact on people's lives if we would just, um, honestly, we would, we would be uh, giving ourselves truly to the new evangelization if we would live a life like that. If we would, if we would uh, take Jesus to the world around us, um, and somebody say, might say, you know, you sound awful Protestant or whatever. No, I don't care what you think I sound like. <laughs> um, all I know is is that Jesus Christ wants to change people's lives just like He changed ours, and um, and and not only that. I mean. It may be that, like, like for uh, some of the experiences that I've had, that I, I wish that I hope that you ask me about, um, as I've traveled the world. I, I, it's not that it's not that I've done all these great things. The majority of what I what I've had the the joy of doing is simply listening to people, um, people that are hurting, people that are. Suffering, literally starving to death. I, I mean, the, this is this is the reality for them, and so evangelism sometimes is just being there. And um, and somebody somebody might be wondering how can I how can I be a good evangelist? Be there, just be there. Love them, care about them, listen to them. And when the Holy Spirit gives you the words to speak, open your mouth. Say them. Speak to them. Give what you have. Don't try to be somebody that you're not. Don't, don't try to be the theologian. Just be yourself. That, that's what led me to Christ. Uh, when Mr. Hawk and Ellie's mom played such a significant role in that. Because they were just being themselves. They were just loving me for who I was. Um, and they knew how messed up I was. <laughs> but they still loved me anyway. And they still listened to me. And they still led me to Christ. <laughs> well, that's brilliant. Well, I want to get into, then, uh, the ministry that you uh, began when did this? How did this start, and what role does this play in your uh, your faith life together? Because that sounds like a, a long time in that ministry. You've been you've been doing this, and a lot of experiences, lots of trips, lots of travel. Tell us a bit about how this came about. Yeah, I'll I'll do my best. Um, I I have traveled the world over eighty times, and, and it all began. Uh, Actually, I I was involved in a pro-life um, uh, back in the back in the nineties. It was a, called a pro-life rescue, and um, so I went with 150 other men, and we were kneeling down in a four-lane highway in Buffalo, New York, and um, and ended up ended up in front of an abortion clinic, praying, legitimately praying. Um, while people were spitting on us and cursing us and everything else and, and ended up as a result of that time spending two weeks in jail. And, um, and it was the best retreat I probably have ever taken in my whole life. <laughs> I remember being there and this is an interesting thing too, because we had some Catholic, uh, brothers that were in there as well and they wanted to have a mass. 
and they wouldn't allow them to have the vestments or anything like that. Well, somebody smuggled them in to this. Uh, <laughs> it was an old abandoned uh, armory and uh, asbestos falling all over the place. It was ridiculous. <laughs> and uh, we called it the Full Armory of God Church. And um, and they wanted to have Mass, and so we surrounded them, these Protestants. Uh, we all literally locked arms and surrounded them. And I'll never forget the guards coming in. They had their guns and everything, uh, shotguns. And, um, and I remember the guy actually sticking his the butt of his gun in my back, um, like trying to get me to move from, uh, from, uh, so that they could interrupt the mass. And, uh, <laughs> this is just a memory that I had during that time. But this is, this was probably the most significant part. We, we had 24 hour prayer. And so everybody would take an hour and, um, at one point, I had uh, prayer at 1 o'clock in the morning. And I remember being there and, and praying. And I remember kneeling on the floor and saying, God, my life now belongs to you. I'll go anywhere you want me to go. I'll do anything you want me to do. Please, just tell me. Show me what it is you want me to do. And, um, and it was interesting that there was this guy who was there who introduced me to, um, a man that by the name of Richard Wormbrand. And he, uh, he wrote a book and, and I would encourage anybody to read this book called tortured for Christ. And as a result of that book, um, again, I didn't read very much. I read the Bible, uh, but when I got that book, he sent me that book uh, after I, after we got out of jail and uh, sent me the book, and I, and I devoured that book, and it, and it forever changed me because it made sense, this whole idea of giving your life to God entirely. Uh, it all seemed, it all made sense to me. And so as, as a result of him sending me that, um, that book, he also invited me to go on a trip with him to China and uh, to smuggle Bibles uh, to people in China to take them uh, to them because it was illegal uh, to have a Bible in China. I'm not even sure it's legal now to, to freely take Bibles in there. I know most of them are printed there. <laughs> doesn't make any sense, but... But we had to smuggle Bibles in. And so um, anyway, I decided to go ahead and go with him. And, um, and I'm remembering to my, I'm just reminded as I'm with him and with this team in China um, and smuggling these Bibles and wondering what good can I be to any of these? Because they all seem smarter than me. See, this is when the re this is when the academic part really started to have an effect on me. The part of uh, insecurity it, w it was major in my life because I didn't feel like I'd be good for much anything. And yet, when I went to China, I'll never forget standing on the Great Wall, and I. I 
and it was almost as though that that uh, the words that were that I remember hearing as a child don't expect him to ever go anywhere or do anything important with his life. Nobody said those words to hurt me. That wasn't it. They were actually saying it to encourage me because I was going to a normal school. Um, but somehow it got twisted within me, and I hated those words. And so I put them out of my mind. And I'll never forget standing on the Great Wall of China and those words for the first time in a long time came back to me. Don't expect to ever go anywhere or do anything important with your life. And it was at that moment that I realized that all things are possible with God. And I stood there on the Great Wall, and all I was was smuggling Bibles. I was, I was a donkey for Jesus. That's all I was doing. I was I was carrying him to people in in China, um, and and that began the whole thing with uh, working overseas. And during that time in China, a friend of mine went to South Sudan, and uh, it was still Sudan at the time, as as many of the people listening to this right now might understand. That South Sudan is the newest nation in the whole world. And um, and so he went off to, to Sudan, and he flew into a place called the Nuba Mountains. And when he flew into the Nuba Mountains, uh, he was attacked by helicopter gunships, and 27 people were killed. And he grabbed a case of water. He and the, and the guys that he was with grabbed a case of water and lived for nine days in the, in the Nuba Mountains until they could find their way out of there. And so he did what any good friend would do. He invited me to go on the next trip with him. <laughs> and so I understand I'm thinking to myself already, I'm, I'm doing pretty good at being a donkey for Jesus. But the idea of going to South Sudan really, it was hard for me because I'm thinking, what do I have to offer anybody in South Sudan? Um, and so anyway, I, I gave in, I, I said, I talked to Ellie about it and, and, uh, we decided, okay, this, this is what we're going to do. This was back in, um, uh, March of 1999 and I remember saying, okay, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go to South Sudan and I'm on the airplane and this, this to me is why, I can say that my wife is my hero in many ways because when I would go to these places like China and uh, Vietnam and different places, I always knew that I had a prayer partner, somebody who was honestly fasting and praying for me while I was away, someone that was managing our home, somebody that was, was looking out for our children that's why she's a hero to me, and it, and it really, when I read this letter on my first trip to South Sudan, this impacted me so much, and this is when, no doubt, she became one of my best friends in the whole world. said in the letter, I won't read the whole thing, but it says, I keep this letter with me in my Bible still to this day. It says, I feel like I've had to prepare my heart to let you go 
permanently. But I trust the Lord in everything concerning your life. And then she says, and please remember, I'd rather be a widow than be married to a coward. And your children would rather be orphans than have a coward for a father. For a father. I'm not just saying these things. I mean them from the bottom of my heart. And so that really had a huge impact on me as I flew into South Sudan because I didn't know if I'd ever see my wife ever again or my children. And I I felt very insecure because I felt like I had so little to offer to those people. And here I am with a, a guy with a fourth grade reading comprehension, somebody, somebody who really struggled academically. And I'll never forget, we went into this little uh, village called Tindalo. And there was a man, uh, Commander Gabriel. And and all these people, they're all living in uh, what is called a tukul, which is a mud hut with a thatched roof. It's very, very primitive. It's full-blown war. There's nothing pretty about the place. It's very difficult. And I go in there and, and I meet Commander Gabriel and, and he, he knew broken English. And he said to me, he said, I'm better, I'm more prepared to fight than any old, any soldier you know. And I said, Oh, really? And he said, I've been leading my men for 16 years. And he begins on button his shirt and he, and he shows me the holes in his body. And he said, I've been shot nine times. And all of a sudden, tears filled his eyes. There's no drama in this either, Keith. I'm telling you just the way it was. Tears filled his eyes. And he looked at me and he goes, I just wish I could read. Here I am, a a guy with a fourth grade reading comprehension, feeling like a rich man. Here, here's a guy who was a part of a, a, a country where 90% of the people were illiterate. They could not read. They couldn't write their own name. And here I am, a guy with a fourth grade reading comprehension, and I'm the rich guy. And something happened in that trip. I fell in love with them. You know, it's interesting that God sometimes will allow us to go places and meet people. And we wonder, why in the world are we even there? We don't fit. We're not, I don't even feel like I'm supposed to be there. But God has reasons for the things that he does. And it, and it, it was there that I fell in love. On that trip, two of the men that were uh, a part of our team, two of the Sudanese men, they were a part of our team, were both shot and killed. They put the gun right on our truck. They were going to kill us. Why didn't, why didn't I die during that time? I don't know. But I fell in love with those people. I saw their struggles. I saw their pain. Um, they taught me how to live the Christian life. What do I mean by that? I, I, I could tell you this story about a man named Peter Bakur. Peter Bakur was captured by uh, Muslims uh, uh, from the north of Sudan at the time. Uh, it was all Islamic, and then in the south, it was uh, predominantly Christian animists. 
And so this guy was a believer in Jesus, but he was completely illiterate. He was captured by these Muslims that came in on horseback, they, and they beat him to a pulp. And they told him, deny your faith and, be, and become a Muslim. And he said, I will not. And so they beat him. And so then they, this was very common in, in their world, where they would give three opportunities. And, I, and unfortunately, I've heard too many stories about people and what they went through and the experiences they had. And it was always that they get three chances. And, um, and so they, after they beat him, they gave him another opportunity. They said, deny Christ and become a Muslim. And he, and he said, I will not. And so they took the butts of their rifle and they, and they hit him in the back of the head. And he said he became almost completely deafened by that experience. And then uh, they gave him another chance to deny Christ. And he said, I, whatever you decide to do to me, it's up to you, but I will not deny my Christ. I will not deny my Lord. And so they took the, the, their rifle and they put it right to his arm. And the, the barrel of their rifle put it right to his arm and they squeezed the trigger and shattered all the bones in his arm. They left him to die a slow death in the, in the bush of Sudan. And, and he said the pain was so excruciating that he was experiencing from all the bones being shattered in his arm. He said he had to take his own knife and cut his own arm off. And I remember looking at Peter, and I said to him, I said, Peter, I said, would you go through that again for Jesus? And he said, well, yes. And I said, I asked him a, a very tough question, and it's a question I've asked people all over the world. I said, Peter, do you forgive the men that did that to you? And literally his eyes filled with tears. And he looked at me, almost, almost like, why are you even asking me this question? He said, Jesus forgives. Who am I not to forgive? This is a man that was completely illiterate. He didn't have some degree in theology. He just experienced Christ and decided that he would live and even die for him if need be. And that's one of our Catholic brothers living in a, in a world ha half a world away. In a, in a completely war-torn nation. A completely broken nation. And at the time when, when I met Peter, the war was fully on. Two million people had died during this war. And there was people starving to death all over. And Peter, in the, in the midst of all that, wouldn't deny his faith in Christ. Could he read a Bible? No. He couldn't do, he couldn't read. And, and so when I think about people like Peter, I think about the fact that I don't really have a right to not forgive anybody. Um... I think that there's times when people have a hard time forgiving somebody that cuts them off in traffic, or they have a hard time forgiving somebody who parks in their parking spot at church. Forgive. Peter taught me 
how to forgive. And, and his story has impacted my life and the life of my family um, and the lives of thousands of people around, the, around North America. As I've gone out and spoke at conferences and, and different things, and I've shared his story because I knew that no one would ever know his story unless I told it. And, it, and it's, it's just amazing to me when I think to myself how many people in South Sudan that I've met that are just like Peter. Um, people, ah, I could, I, I've got so many stories that I could tell. Um, there was one, one young man, uh, Demir Garang, and he was just a young man, like 13 years old. And, uh, we had gotten in a situation where we had the land in his village. Um, it was, it was, it was a bad thing. It was the, the plane was going down and, um, there's no exaggeration there. The plane was going down the pilots. Uh, the, the pilot that was flying us, he's sweating. He's very, he's, it's not good. And we make a landing. We, so we made the landing and, uh, we all made it through it. There was a sandstorm that was going on there at the time. And I meet this, this young man, Demir Garang. And Demir Garang, um, was, uh, he came limping into the, into the, uh, camp where we were. And I hear his story, and Demir tells me about how his uh, his family was was killed, and how he was sold as a slave, and um, and it was inter- it was the interesting part was he was sold as a slave, and he was supposed to take care of his master's camels. And he didn't know how to take care of camels. He never even saw them in the southern part of Sudan where he lived. And so one day he lost one of the camels. And at the time when he was out uh, taking care of these camels, he found out that there were some uh, Christians that were meeting together in a mud hut on Sunday. And, um, And so they invited him to come and be with them. And, uh, again, majority of the people that I met in, uh, in South Sudan are all Catholic brothers and sisters. And so here's Demir. He, he, he loses a camel. He goes back to his master and says, I lost one of your camels. He's the master said nothing. The next day, Demir, uh, on a Sunday goes and he meets with these Christians that are meeting in in this mud hut. And he comes back and his master says, where have you been? And he said, and because he was just a boy, he was only seven years old at the time. Um, and he said, I was meeting with the Christians. And, he, and the owner said, you made two fatal mistakes. And he said, yesterday you lost my camel. Today you worship with infidels. And so this man, this grown man, takes a seven-year-old little boy, and he nails both of them with spikes, nails both of his knees together, puts a board in between his knees and nails both of his knees together, then nails both of his feet to a board and leaves him out in the sun to die, seven years old. His parents had already been killed. 
and um, somebody heard him crying. And the, and the man in the middle of the night came and, and rescued Demir, took him, picked him up uh, with his feet still nailed to this board, picked him up, carried him off to a doctor, and the doctor uh, pulled the nails out of his knees and pulled his, the nails out of his feet. And I asked Demir, I said, Demir, why did they treat you like that? Why did he do that to you? He said, the only thing I could think of is maybe he was trying to treat me like Jesus. And, and it's interesting to me, I said to him, I said, Demir, I said, do you forgive the man that did that to you? He said, I, I saw him in a market many years afterwards, and he said, I had no hatred in my heart for him at all. It was only God that could do that in a person's life. And Demir knew it. I said, Demir, what would you like to be when you, when you get older? And he said, I'd like to be a doctor. I said, why do you want to be a doctor? He said, he said maybe I could take the nails out of some other little boy's knees. <laughs> it's people like that that I've met for the last 30 years of my life, or since 1999 working in South Sudan, but working with persecuted Christians all over the world. It's people like that. It's, it's people like a dear friend of mine. He's a catechist in, at St. Mark's Church, in, in South Sudan, where I work right now, and, um, and Charles Kulang. And again, he's one of those guys, I know nobody would never know his story unless I tell it. And Charles Kulang and his brother and, his, and their families were meeting together. They were having, having dinner together, and the wives were cooking the dinner outside. And, and, the, and uh, he was sitting inside the, the mud hut with his brother, and they were talking, and it, uh, the sun was setting, and, and the, the kids were outside playing. And next thing you know, literally, it just goes crazy. And, and, and uh, Charles's wife and sister-in-law were both shot and killed. This happened just a year and a half ago. And they were shot and killed, and in, in, uh, Charles's son, his little boy, was taken. He was stolen. Because that's common in South Sudan, many children have been stolen. Um, and so his little boy was stolen, and his niece and nephew were stolen. Well, somebody tracked down the man that took Charles's son, and and unfortunately, they shot and killed him, and they got the little boy back. But his niece and nephew have never been heard from ever again. So. Charles, here he is, serving the church. I mean, the man serves the church. He loves God with all of his heart. And how can this happen? All I can tell you is it was, it's South Sudan. This is what life is like. You don't know what's coming. You don't know what's going to happen. And so, um, uh, Brother Charles as, as he's going through all this, and he just, I just met with him uh, just a couple weeks ago, and he asked me a question. He said in a letter, he said, Brother Tom, would you go and pray for my little boy? Um, this is the boy that was captured uh, and was brought back to him. He said, would you pray for my little boy? He hasn't spoken since that, since that time. And he said... 
He said, do you think it was because of all the blood that, that was splattered on him when my wife was shot and killed? Do you think that's why? And of course, what am I supposed to say? Remember I said earlier that sometimes we just need to listen. Sometimes we need to just give ourselves to God in a way that is not so, uh, you know, we're great speakers or we know we've got all this uh, knowledge or all these things. Sometimes we just need to listen. Sometimes we just need to be there. Now, it may not be South Sudan that somebody's uh, being asked to be there. It may be uh, with a, a family who's, uh, the mom and dad were just divorced or whatever. It, I don't know. Maybe it's because somebody's dealing with uh, alcoholism, whatever it might be, but they just need somebody to listen. And, uh, and my friend Charles Kulang, he just needed somebody to listen. Here's a dad who's wondering, why won't my son talk? Is it? I mean, just think about having these thoughts in your head. Um, is it because my wife's blood splattered all over him when she was shot? I mean, I mean it's overwhelming uh, to think about these things. But this is life in South Sudan. These people have had such a huge impact on my life. They've taught me what true Christianity is. What do I mean by that? They've taught me that being a normal Christian is committing every breath I take, every beat of my heart, and every drop of my blood to Jesus and his kingdom. That's what they taught me is normal. In the midst of their um, inability to read and write, that's what they taught me. And so I thank them. I thank them by telling their stories wherever I go, wherever I can. I'll share their stories because their stories are, are more important than mine because nobody will ever hear their story. But at the same time, Ellie has had the, the responsibility of managing our home and taking care of our children like I said, we've been apart from each other for over three years just in my travel, and yet we still are deeply in love. She is, she is definitely 100% my best friend in the whole world, no, no question. And, um, and she, she's never been to South Sudan, um, and yet she's been there as, as she's prayed and fasted for me. And she's taught our children how to how to pray for me. My my oldest son has been to South Sudan five different times, and um, and I, I remember one time he went by himself, and somebody spit in his face, and they put a machete to his throat, and um, and I asked him. I said, I said, John, I said, are are does that bother you that that happened? And and he said something along these lines. He said. Well, Dad, he said, I'm kind of glad that it happened because now I know what they go through all the time and I'll know how to pray for them. Um, it, it's just really been a, a powerful experience that people uh, who live so simply have, have taught me so deeply 
about faith in Christ. Because when I'm in South Sudan, if I'm not walking with God, I'm an idiot to be there. I'm a fool to go. If you, if a person's not going to walk with God, and a person is not going to have faith in God, and a person's not going to worship Him through the life that they live, they have no business going to a place like South Sudan or Pakistan, like that worked for many years in Pakistan, uh, China, wherever it was. Uh, you have to be crazy to do those things um, without God, to just do it on your own strength. It, it really doesn't make any sense. And um, with all the different times that... Uh, my life has come so close to to ending in South Sudan, especially um, where I thought I, I I literally said goodbye to my family with me myself and our field coordinator Dixon Mutiso. Um, I remember literally holding hands, walking down a, a dirt road, thinking that we were going to our execution, and and saying. Uh, prayers of forgiveness for the people that were holding us, the people that were um, taking us. There was people standing all in the road with torches. It was like a movie, torches and clubs and guns. And we were thinking we're going to our death. And um, this, this is, again, South Sudan. You don't know what's coming. It was back during the war. And um, uh, Dixon Matiso, my, my dearest, one of my dearest friends in the world, um, he said this. He said, Tom, he said, you know, when the war was on in Sudan, you knew where the front line was. And the reason we did, because we went there. That's where we spent a lot of time. And we'd go to the front line and we'd, and we'd do our best to share Jesus with these people. And we would take them things, blankets and clothes and, and shoes, because... Here these soldiers were um, fighting this fight with no shoes on, nothing. And, um, and he said, you know, back then during the war, we knew where the front line was, he said, but now in South Sudan, the front line starts at everybody's front door. You don't know what's coming each and every day. And it's true. Well, I think that there's so much in those stories. There's so much power in there. And, you know, at the beginning there, you called Ellie a hero. And I think of all the the violence you're describing and the danger that you were put in and your life. And I think of Ellie at home praying for you, raising your kids. You, you talk about, you know, you, you serve where you're put. You serve Jesus where you are, whether it's a factory or, or a podcast or at home like your your wife and, and your kids were. I wonder, Ellie, did you feel like a hero? And what was it like on that on that side of things? Because I mean, I think I think I would say you were certainly certainly a, a huge hero, and I think our listeners would agree. Because there you were in the background praying for Thomas. He was in these situations and and as he said, teaching and raising your kids to to pray for their father and and to understand the importance of what he was doing to follow Jesus where he was led. What was that experience? <laughs> like that, that's to me a kind of sainthood, <laughs> the experience that, that you were going through as well. Well, I, I certainly didn't 
feel like a hero to answer that first question. Um, I just was doing my best to be, you know, a normal mom and a loving wife, supportive. Um, I remember uh, I homeschooled our two oldest children for years before we kind of had our second generation of kids. And um, I remember being at a, a homeschool co-op group. Uh, we went to classes there once a week. And a lady knew that Tom was in South Sudan at the time. And as he said, that the war was going on, there would be bombs, you know, being dropped uh, nearby where he was. And she said something to me, something to the effect of, um, well, you must be very special. Uh, you're a special woman. And, and my thought was, and I, I shared this with Tom, he's uh, repeated it over and over <laughs> again, much to my chagrin. But he <laughs> said, he said, or I told her, I said, no, since when does obedience make you special? Amen. Um, you know, we were just doing what we, or we've always tried to do our best to just do what we felt like God was asking of us to do, and as Tom stated, you know, that wherever we are, we're all supposed to be doing that as followers of Christ, as disciples, and if we're doing what he's called us to do, then we're just being obedient, Not we're not special for doing it. Um, I did, you know, feel like that we had an unusual life. Uh, it wasn't something else that most people were, were doing. And uh, I'm very, I feel very fortunate that we have spent our years uh, interacting with persecuted Christians because I feel like that it gave us a good um, kind of a, a North Star, if you will, to follow a good compass for our lives, that we realized that when we were going through things that might be challenging, that we would look at each other and say, well, what about this person? What about that person? The stories that Tom would come home and share with us and um, gave a lot of good opportunities for teaching the kids and for helping them to see what's really important in this life and not complain about things, little things that we deal with here. And um, it was scary. There was a lot of times I remember early in the early years, we, we only had a, a satellite phone uh, to communicate when Tom was over in South Sudan. And there was a lot of times when I couldn't get a hold of him, or I remember one particular time when I was hearing on the news uh, there was a group of Americans that had gotten killed on the road where he used to drive in from Uganda into South Sudan, and I didn't hear from him for, I think it was like three days, and I, I got pretty concerned at that point. And um, there were there were t several times like that, but overall, I'm just really thankful. I feel like that God gave me an opportunity to grow in my faith and in my trust in Him. Um so now when I go through things just on a daily basis, it's much easier for me to put my faith and trust in him now um, since I went through those, you know, we have gone through those experiences in the past. You know, Keith, one of the, one of the things that 
when Ellie was was sharing, I, I was reminded of um, something that a, a a man said that when uh, when he was in prison, he said he came out of that prison experience. Fourteen years he spent in prison for his faith, and when he came out of that prison experience, he said. A person only truly believes in that which they're willing to die for. And that impacted me so much. It impacted my, our whole family in a, in a, in a really powerful way. Um, and, and it just really, I, I think that that is probably a question that I've asked many people around the world is, is, you know, what do you believe? What do you really believe? What do you say? that you believe. And I leave it with them. Um, it's not to, it's not to belittle anybody. It's not to do anything, but it's really to challenge us to ask ourselves the real question of what do we really believe? And I think that that's what Ellie is saying. Um, that so many of these, so much of this time that I was away and she was at home, um, Again, just like I said, that it, it, a person to go to, to South Sudan and go there without God is, is really kind of foolish. Um, and at the same time, for Ellie to be at home, uh, managing her home and taking care of our children, a person that would, would try to do that apart from God, that'd be kind of foolish too. And I think that's what I was hearing and what Ellie was sharing and, and, um, it 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 has been tough. It's been tough for all of us. Um, but at the same time, I I know that we wouldn't trade it for anything. Hmm. So I, I'm thinking of when you first began this relationship with Christ. This miraculous event happened in your life, and you began to deepen that relationship. And it was it was the Catholics around you that seemed to be the least interested in this. So I'm I'm sitting here listening to these fantastic stories, your your encounters and experiences with these Christians who are living in the absolute you know razor's edge of their faith, uh, life and death situations, living out their faith. And I'm thinking now, how in the how in the world did you guys ever find your way back into that Catholic church that you left that seemed to be so uninterested in living like that? How did you guys? circle back to the Catholic Church in the midst of this amazing work you were doing? Well, I, I think that um, one of the things that I, I, I wanted to share, too, is that during this time, um, I really felt strongly that I wanted to do some kind of pastoring of some kind. And um, I felt like that it might be a good idea if, if we start a church um, where, where this, the, what we're talking about today, that this could be the norm of, of our Christian faith. And so we planted a church in Kentucky, and, um, and of course we didn't know anything like we know today, and, um, but we, just, we were just doing our best. And we, and we, so we planted a church and I always thought this, Ellie and I oftentimes talk to, talk to each other about this idea that there must be more to God than what we, than what we've even experienced. 
we know that we know we haven't even um, tapped in in the in the in any way to who God really is. And so I remember when we started the church, I personally, um, on my own, uh, on my own, I, I began to study and really begin to ask, you know, God, who are you in a way that I've never known before? I remember praying a prayer, God, please take away any bad theology that's within me. Um, I think that that's the, the hard part about living in the Protestant world, if you will, um, is that you, you meet people of all different backgrounds. Um, their theological background is, is different. Um, and so you get all these seeds are planted in your head. And so it's almost, you almost become either you're, you're this way, you know, you're, you're just part of this denomination and you don't mess with the others, or you just kind of become a little bit confused by what, what's out there. Now, I'm not saying that I felt confused, but at the same time, I also knew that a lot of seeds were planted in me and in my family as a result of all the people that we listened to over the years. And, um, and so when we planted this church, I, I just knew that there was something of deeper uh, to be known about God. And so I began to study. And as I'm, as I'm studying, I, I read this book by a man named A.W. Tozer. And it's called The, uh, um, uh, yeah. the Knowledge of the Holy. And, um, and in that book, he starts out by saying, if everyone was reading Augustine and Anne's Psalm, there would be no reason for me to write this book. This guy's a Protestant. And I'm thinking, okay, I've heard of Augustine. Who's Anne's Psalm? I don't, I don't know who this person is. And through the book, he's quoting these people. Um, and it's some of the, it's some deep thought. Uh, the, the quotes are so deep and I'm thinking, this is what I'm hungry for. These are the kind of things I'm, that this is what I was talking about when I'm reading this book. And so I researched and found out who these people were that he was quoting and come to find out that a lot of them were Catholics. And I'm thinking, what's going on here? And so I took, it was almost as though I could, that, that book became a permission slip for me to begin to study. Um, and again, remember, I, I was not good at reading years ago, um, but I became pretty decent at reading. And, I, and so I started gobbling up these books by people like Augustine, um, different saints. I, I began to, I, I, I got another book that spoke uh, specifically about St. Teresa of Avila um, and St. John of the Cross. And next thing I know, I mean, my life has changed. I went from being uh, 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 a little kid playing in a, in a mud puddle to diving in the ocean. This was awesome. And, um, and so secretly, I didn't even tell Ellie any of this stuff that was going on, um, all these thoughts I was having. I remember going to uh, the Abbey at Gethsemane in, uh, in Kentucky here, and, um, 
and meeting with the monks and taking week-long silent retreats and not speaking. And, um, and, and then I started, uh, studying the, uh, the church fathers. And I mean, my life changed dramatically. I read a book, um, called The Four Witnesses, um, by Rod Bennett. And, um, it forever, it forever, I mean, had a major impact on my life. And, um, and I know it did on Ellie's life as well. Um, I, I believe that you may have even had Rod on the, on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. He's a good friend of and, the show. <laughs> yeah. And, um, we've met since then, but it, 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 this book has such a huge impact on my life and, um, many other people, but the Lord began to, to evangelize me back to the Catholic church while I'm pastoring at this other church and began to evangelize me through saints that were, had been gone for a long time, but their stories lived. The reality of who they were when they walked the earth lived, who they are now lived. And so that, that had such a huge impact on me and little by little, my life is changing. Um, it's growing deeper in God in, in a way that I never even knew was possible. Um, and, and I, and so I just began to grow and began to grow and, and, uh, my prayer life changed. I'm interacting with different priests that I know. Um, I'm not telling anybody. I'm just kind of keeping this thing to myself. And, um, I even remember Ellie saying to me one time, she says, um, I was sharing some stories with her that I was uh, uh, finding out when I was reading these books, and she goes, "But we're not going to become Catholic, are we?" And, I, and I'm thinking, <laughs> "No, we're not going to be Catholic." And in the back of my mind, I'm going, "I've gone too far. I don't know that I can turn around. I, um, I've experienced what I always dreamt of experiencing." And believe it or not, it was in the church that couldn't understand um, the depths of testimony that I was trying to share with them. But in the, it, but like I said, it was as though the Holy Spirit was evangelizing me through the lives of the saints. And um, after a six-year journey of quietly. Uh, really pursuing God through reading, um, through the saints, my life really began to change. And, um, and I'll never forget. I, I, at one point I'll let Ellie tell you this, but at one point I handed Ellie Rod's book and I said, here, read it. What do, what do you think, Ellie? What was that? Is that pretty accurate? So he came home one afternoon and began to share with me some things that he had read out of Rod's book, and um, it intrigued me. And so I think the the part that he showed to me was uh, through uh, St. Justin Martyr, and it was uh, when he was talking about what I would have termed as a Protestant, what church service looked like back, you know, in his time. 
And of course, as soon as I read it, I immediately knew this is the Catholic mass. There's just no getting around it. And, um, and Tom had been sharing with me different things over several years at, at that time, but I didn't really want to hear about it. I kind of felt like, well, we've already been there, done that, don't really want to go back. <laughs> and, um, but when I started reading this book, I, it really intrigued me. So I started reading more and more, um, read more of, uh, St. Irenaeus and Justin Martyr, and but when I got to St. Ignatius of Antioch, that really threw me because during our time of working with the persecuted church, we uh, learned about St. Ignatius and hearing about his story and how he died in the Colosseum, and he was one of my heroes. I wanted to have the faith that he had. And I didn't, I wouldn't have referred to him as a Catholic or I didn't know to me, he was just a, an early Christian. I had no idea about any of his writings that we had writings that he did. I, I didn't know that. And so when I began to read what he wrote, it was almost as though he began to pastor me through his writings there in my living room that day. And I could almost, uh, I, I'm not saying that I saw him or anything, but it was like, I almost felt him saying to me, you know, you want to be the way that I am or that I, the way that I was and have the faith that I had, but you don't want to listen to anything that I have to say and how I got there. And when I really, that just sent me, uh, I, it just set me on a ride. <laughs> I just started reading everything I could get my hands on, reading uh, the Church Fathers, and um, and then I found a couple of websites um, that I could get a hold of all the Church Fathers' writings online, and I just began to dive in, and uh, I got so excited about what I was learning, and, and Tom would come home, and, and I started sharing things that I was learning while he was gone. And um, basically the rest is history. After that, we just got to the place where finally one Sunday I told him, I said, I can't do this anymore. Um, we we have to, to go back to the church. I I know too much. Uh, it, it, was, it was so exciting to me. I was the one who wrote down, said, you know, where I thought I knew everything. As a 17-year-old kid, I thought I understood what the church had taught and relearning and, and finally being catechized, uh, catechizing myself <laughs> uh, through what I was reading. And I got so excited about uh, questions that I'd always had, reading what the early church fathers said about baptism and about the Eucharist, and, and it, it answered, I was like, I had so many aha moments that I realized, this is what I've been missing. Why didn't anybody tell me these things? <laughs> well, you know, uh, I, I just, I thought, I just, it was happening one after the other after the other, and I get excited about it to this day. I still love to read, and I realize that it's just endless. There's just uh, endless 
days of learning ahead, and and I love. Um, we also started watching the uh, the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi, and that had a huge uh, impact on our lives as well. It was a great encouragement to us. I find it so interesting that it's it's almost as if the the saints these these. Uh, these Christians who've gone before us, who we as Catholics believe are alive and intercede for us and pray for us and journey with us in heaven, you know, the, the, the living Catholics you encountered earlier in your faith lives were uninterested in, in your transformation, Tom, and in living with the faith um, and answering these questions of yours, Ellie. But, so when it comes time to, to ask these questions um, of the Catholic Church, it's these it's these uh, quote-unquote dead Christians who are the ones that seem to be answering your <laughs> questions, right? That's so fascinating. Amen. Well, I think that their faith really spoke to us. We, we could relate. They were like the people that we were already um, dealing with, uh, or not dealing with, but meeting with, and learning about, and, and here in you know, Tom getting their stories, and, and for us, now, we always said, we want to go back to, what was the early church like? You know, there was a part of us as Protestants that we'd heard that so many times from different people. We want to have the faith that the early church had. We want to, you know, live like, live like the early church did. Well, these are the men and women who wrote and lived in the early church, and we started reading and listening to them, and and we could relate to their faith because here they were, you know, dying for the faith and being martyred. And and for us, and with our background, that just really spoke to us. And, and remember, I had said um, about that one that one man who said, after fourteen years of prison, a person only truly believes in that which they're willing to die for. And then you read these the lives of these early church fathers and these saints and. And and you, and you realize that what he said is absolutely true, because how many of them uh, were eaten by lions? How many of them uh, were killed as a result of their faith in Christ? Now, listen, we understand that that life's not all about just you know being martyred. We know that um, we have a very unique story and an understanding. But we also understand that, okay, I may not be martyred today. I may not die for Christ today, but will I live for him? Will, will I give all for him? Uh, whether it's with the guys at work or um, whether it's with a, another uh, homeschool mom or whether it's somebody I'm, I'm text or uh, emailing, who, who, you know, am I living for him, does anybody know that he's the most important thing in my entire life? And that's what that's what reading the saints taught us is that um, there's no question who is uh, the most important person in their lives. And um, I've often said this that um, a person naturally, everybody. Not just not just Christians, but everybody talks about that which they love the most. If if you you talk to to grandparents, they'll talk to about their 
their grandchildren. They'll show you all kinds of pictures of them. They'll do it's so easy, so natural to talk about that which you love the most. And the question that I had for myself is, and I and I continue to ask myself, who do I love the most? I've said that Ellie's my best friend, but I love God more than I love her. And um, and if the and if it wasn't for spending time with the author of love, I wouldn't know how to love her. It it would be impossible to love her the way that she needs to be loved. And um, and and that's a that's a reality that definitely that we learn from the saints, uh, no doubt about it. <laughs> that's so well said. Well, we have to begin to. To wrap things up here, I mean, I, we could listen to your stories, the stories of your both of your lives, your lives together, and your your, your trips and travels, Tom, forever. I think. I'm wondering what what you would say, uh, you know, as a means of beginning to close this, to to a person who is like you were, like both of you were, being so obedient to God, to following where where Christ led you, which led into danger a lot of the times and led into obedience of, of, for you, Ellie, letting Tom go over and over again and trusting that um, if God was willing, he'd return and, and raising kids in the meantime. And what would you say to somebody who is beginning to to, to look into the, the truth of the Catholic Church? Um, to maybe ask questions like, like you were asking about the, the depth. Is there more there than, than what I am living in? As you begin to to look into that, as as you got a copy of Rod's fantastic book, and, and your eyes were opened to the depth that the Catholic Church had to offer to your relationship with Christ, what would you say to to somebody who's kind of on the the edge of that, looking in and wondering, do I need any of that, or am I okay just living in my faith and, and being obedient to God where I am here? What what would you say, Tom? I would say jump in <laughs> um, because there, like I say, there's it used to be, I used to be a, a big fish in a small pond in the circles that I ran in, but now I'm the smallest minnow in the ocean and I'm so okay with that because I'm learning so much that I always wanted to know. I'm learning so much about my Lord I'm learning so much about life. I'm learning so much about love. I'm learning so much about what being a disciple really looks like. Um, I would I would tell anybody that's that's thinking about these things that's maybe maybe they were like me. Um, maybe maybe they're they were Protestant or whatever, and they're and maybe they're, maybe they're just considering that you know just wondering is God even real. Um, yeah, he is. He changes lives to this day. I, I'm, I'm a witness. Um, you know, somebody can say that, you know, uh, um, uh, a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. Um, I've experienced God in such a powerful way. And so, when it comes to like say that there's somebody that's out there right now that's 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 thinking about the Catholic Church, I've I've 
I've run in different denominations throughout the years, Ellie and I have. We've learned so much. But I can tell you that being a Catholic, is, is it, there is nothing better than being a Catholic. Is, it, is, there, is everyone you meet perfect? Nope, not at all. Um, that, that, but it, it, it shows me that we're a part of a family. Everybody's different. Everybody has different giftings. Everybody, everybody um, uh, is on their own journey, if you will. And so my encouragement to anybody would be keep going, keep searching, keep looking. I trust God in, in that because there's times when Ellie and I would be in this uh, journey once, once it became our journey together. Again, I, I, I journeyed with God for almost six years by myself. And so when, when it became uh, kind of our journey together, we would notice that there was times when the Holy Spirit would um, put the brakes on, it would slow us down. And then there was times that we, we sat <laughs> pushing on the gas pedal, and we were just so excited, new things. We'd learn new things. And, um, and anyway, he, he's the one that really walked us through this. And I trust the Lord that he will do that with anybody that's listening right now, that, that maybe they're considering the same thing. Maybe that, maybe they're going on a similar journey. Um, trust God. God knows what he's doing. And he wants to lead you to a place where you were meant to be from the beginning. God wants you um, to listen. God just wants you to obey. Um, and it's, and it, I, I mean, us going back to the Catholic Church has been so good. It's, it, has it been easy? No. Um, when, I, when we went back to the Catholic Church, things changed. Um, many of the Protestant friends that we had stopped supporting our work. And uh, so I had to go out and get a job. Um, so full-time ministry, as I'd known it for 30 years, came to an end. Um, do I still go to South Sudan? Yeah, I do. Um, do I still speak when given the opportunity? Yeah, whenever I can. But, but I miss that part. I miss the part of full-time ministry. I do miss that. But I trust God. If he led us here, he knows what he's doing. Um, and so that, that's the only thing that I can say is that he, he's trustworthy. And um, he's proven it over and over and over again in our lives. Ellie, I don't know who in this situation needs to trust God more. Uh, Tom, who is in these difficult, uh, dangerous situations, or, or you, who trusts to, to, to let go and let God take care of him. What, what would you say in this, in this deepening of your journey back to the church? I mean, I'm thinking of you uh, at 17 um, or so on the, on the floor with the, with the Bibles and reference books spread out trying to answer these questions. Um, 
only to have gone through all this intense experience of the 30 years of Tom and ministry and marriage and family, circling back to answering all those questions. Uh, how would you describe that journey to somebody who, who might be looking in that direction? Well, I don't know if just in a minute I can describe it all, but I, as you were talking, the one word that came to me was, I feel fulfilled. I feel like, uh, and it, it, it's, I say feel, but I don't know whatever word to describe it, um, that the Lord has brought us full circle and truly has brought us home. Um, I I could never go back. Like Tom said, I, I know too much. I have experienced too much. Um, it does take, it, it took courage to to walk the path back to uh, the church that we did. Um, as Tom stated, we lost friends. We lost support of our ministry. Um, and we've had to, we've, we've been ex- experienced trusting the Lord for our whole lives. It kind of looked at it like, well, here's a new opportunity, probably the biggest one that we've had yet. Uh, but it's been so worth it. We would never go back. We would not turn around for anything. And all I can say is that I know for, for some people, they're afraid. Um, a lot of people have so many misconceptions about the Catholic Church. They've gotten all their information from people who hate the Church. And it just, uh, you've talked about so many times, you know, the, the fake news. And I was guilty of that uh, for years. I had so many uh, conceptions, and they they were wrong. And um, and so I would encourage anybody out there that if they're the least bit interested in thinking, well, maybe I, I don't know exactly what I've never even been to a mass. I don't know exactly what the church teaches, or I've been taught, you know, this that or the other. I want to see for myself. Is it true? You know, see for yourself. Don't just uh, hear us, but but check it out for yourself. Start reading. You know, read the catechism, read the early church fathers, and um, see that it if it lines up with with scripture. Uh, that was one thing that was so amazing to me is that uh, I think that one of the reasons why I didn't understand what the church taught for so long was because. There's a different paradigm. You you can't go into um, leaving one world, if you will, of Protestantism to the Catholic Church and uh, think that you're going to understand everything right away because it's it's just a whole different world and it's it's a it's a really good world, <laughs> but it's so different that it, it just takes some time to learn new vocabulary words, new um, ways of thinking. You know, you have to really go back to the way the early church thought before there was even a Bible. And uh, I know a lot of people struggle with these things, and it, it is hard. It, it was a hard journey. It wasn't easy, but again, it was definitely worth it and feel fulfilled by doing it and we really believe that we are where God wants us to be. Mm-hmm. Amen. Guys, this has been an absolutely incredible interview. I can't, 
I can't even put into words or, or overstate that. I mean, I think listeners will be absolutely uh, rewarded spiritually <laughs> listening to you guys. These are incredible stories you've shared with us and your, your work in South Sudan and around the world, Tom, and your, your experience uh, growing up and these miraculous encounters of your faith originally. I mean, this whole thing, this whole package has been incredible experience. And I want to thank you guys from the bottom of my heart for sharing it with me. Uh, Tom, I, I'd love you to... to Take a second to tell listeners where they can find out about um, your particular ministry and the work that you're doing. Where can they go to find out more? Yeah, so they can go to www.grnglobalresponsenetwork.grnconnect.org. And um, there they'll find out information about um, not only who we are, but what we're doing currently in uh, South Sudan, mainly, and in Pakistan. Yeah, and then to, to contact me, they can do that by um, uh, just uh, writing to me uh, by email, uh, T, as in Tom Zorowski, uh, Z-U-R-O-W-S-K-I, at grnconnect.org. And uh, I'd be happy to to um, connect with anybody that's got questions or whatever. Maybe 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 there is somebody that's listening that has questions about what we were just talking about. We we would love to talk with them. <laughs> that sounds fantastic, and I'll put links to those in the show notes as well. Guys, I can't thank you enough for all of your time and for sharing these stories, but I got to say thank you, and I want to say God bless the both of you, God bless your ministry, your family, and the amazing work you are doing for the church. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Keith. Thank you so much. It's been our pleasure. <laughs> the pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much, and God bless. God bless you, too. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Cordial Catholic. I truly hope you enjoyed that marathon episode with Tom and Ellie Zorowski. It was a long one, but as I think you'll agree, a fantastic story. They have an amazing, amazing tale of faith, a journey, an absolute lifetime of experiences, and wow, I am so grateful they brought that to me and allowed me to share it with you. Check out links in the show notes for this show to Tom's website for his ministry. And please do consider supporting the incredible work he is doing with persecuted Christians overseas. Please pray and fast for Tom, Ellie, and their ministry as well. And for me too. And this podcast. TheCordialCatholic.com is the website. We're at TheCordialCatholic on Twitter. TheCordialCatholic on Facebook and cordialcatholic at gmail.com is the email address. Please drop me a line, let me know who you are, where you're listening from, and why you're listening. I'd love to hear from you. PayPal.me slash cordialcatholic for one-time donations to help keep this show running. Patreon.com slash cordialcatholic for monthly support. Even one or two dollars a month goes a long way to helping me to keep this show going. 
Thank you so much for those already supporting the show. You guys are fantastic. Please subscribe, please follow, please tweet it out, put it on Facebook, tell your friends. Just tell one friend and they'll tell one friend and they'll tell someone else. Please do pray for me. I am praying for you. God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.